Anyway, so can you judge that we have time for questions later? Yeah. In principle, yeah. In You know, in principle, in the sense of you know, I quoted some of those wonderful from good old times radio, everyone. Soviet jokes, you know, like about that Rabino. No, is it, is it true that Rabinovich won a car at the lottery? In principle, it's true, but it wasn't a car, it was a bicycle, and he didn't win it, it was stolen from him. In this sense, in principle, I will. Okay, uh, I wanted to include that, of course, I'm not only fully solidary with, I'm not only solidary with these protests. Obviously, but first I'm, how should I put it, it will sound stupid, I'm sorry, I'm especially solidary with them, because it fits what I already mentioned when I was here the last time, I mean, you know, this area of education, this is one of the big battles today, in the United States here, uh, what is behind all this is so-called in Europe, Bologna reform of higher education. And it's not only about, about, uh, about fees, about paying, about money. There is a concept beneath it, which is to put it very simply, very simply, as they like to put it, higher education should be an ivory tower. It should serve the needs of society. And the needs of society, of course, are decided by capital and the state. No? So what is beneath is... A concept of higher education as producing experts. And that's their idea, to put it very simply. Uh, I remember uh, hearing one minister from European Union, I don't know which country, who even openly put it. Their idea is this one. Let's say you have a disorder, like these demonstrations. No? What they want us is, you call a psychologist, how you contain mass violence, how you address it, you call social workers, how do you know? We should be like repairmen, like to, to fix problems, no? Or you have an ecology, uh, but the point is precisely that, no, this is the end of thinking, this is not what we are doing. This is exactly what Kant called private use of reason where it's subordinated to a goal, what Kant calls public use of reason, means questioning the goals themselves. Like, is this a true problem? Do we perceive the problem in the right way? Where is the problem? What if the way those in power, in power formulate the problem mystifies the problem? I mean, it's something pretty horrible that is going on here, which is also a nice argument against those who think time for high theory is over. Uh, this is a proof that those in power know that time for theory is not over, that they fear high theory. Second, I also support what delicately is referred to as the violent aspect of these protests. Why? There are two arguments, official, what I was able to discern reading the media. First, uh, they say, the, you know, all this eternal game, the majority was peaceful, blissful, blah, blah, just a minority, and so on. And please don't fall into the game of to trying to save the movement, of agreeing too fast with this. Uh, 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 
And the second thing was you could have delivered the same message without violence. Fuck them. Of course you can deliver the message, but, but nobody would hear the message, you know. <laughs> this is what they like, that 100 people gather and write a message and then you don't even get, get one the bottom note. Sorry, but that's the society where we live. You have to break some windows to get the message through. If it is like this, do it, my God, no? Point two, this minority, violent, and so on, of course it's like this, but why should the truth be on the side of majority? And I'm not dismissing majority, I'm not playing a stupid Leninist game where you know the majority are stupid. No, but you know, let's also not be terrorists here. Like, there has to, people are not in the bad sense opportunists, but you know what I mean? Most of the people are not ready to risk a potential street fight or whatever. And yes, you need some minority which, like, gives an additional, sorry for the obscenity, turn of the screw or <laughs> push to things. Especially since you know from whom we should learn how to use violence, without irony now, from, uh, from the Middle East, West Bank. Now you will say, am I supporting Palestinian terror? No, I'm talking about Israeli terror and violence. Uh, to avoid a misunderstanding, I am not only not anti-Semitic, but I even think that we should be very careful here. For example, with all my sympathy for absolute sympathy, this means I will try to show it. Next June I'm going to Jenin. They have wonderful thing there, Freedom Theater. And Jenin, you know, the first association in our mind is Jenin, ooh, the stupid fundamentalist city where they had a great battle with uh, the Israeli army a couple of years ago. No, I was shocked meeting them in New York, this Freedom Theater. My God, these are, uh, these are educated people who desperately want to learn. And what fascinated me is they invited me and my friend Udi Aloni is organizing that some very nice guys, even from the liberal establishment, will go there. Like, you know James Seamus, to cut a long story short, the, uh, the producer of Angli Films and some other nice movies like, uh, like, uh, like uh, Ice Storm and so on. And as I would put it in my terms, not only this arty sheet, but also he produced some truly great movies like Hulk, Iron Man, or whatever. <laughs> okay, he will go there. He offered immediately to go there to do what? This is what I like. Not any cheap Western who we throw stones, free Palestine. No, to simply talk about cinema theory, culture, how to do it, movies, ideology, and so on. They told us so nicely, our friends there, which, if you know, because this brought me into trouble, everything is now... Everyone is now mad at me, I talk too much, and then there was some idiot who put this down. You can already find this, but I cannot restrain myself repeating this joke even on, on the web. For example, I learned from them, so that you will see that they are normal, if normal means to be obscene like me. Uh, a wonderful joke, vulgar, but I like it, I think it's progressive, about Iraqi and Americans, you know, like they told me, this is their site, it's like... Uh, uh, why do Iraqi women don't like to fuck American soldiers? Because after they finish, they all the time talk about pulling out but never do it and so on. <laughs> it could have been worse. Why not? I'm tempted to say, why not? No? So, ah, Israel. What happened? Again, in in and even further, I, must, I was already attacked for it. I have 
as a European, some doubts, I may be convinced, about all this boycotting Israel. Sympathetic as I am to this. My only counter-argument is, you know, no matter how much you explain, uh, we mean the state of Israel, not the Jews. In Europe, boycott anything connected with Jews has a certain historical resonance. But in spite of this, again, I want now to target very clearly the state of Israel. Are you aware what is going on there? Now, more than ever. Now, by now I mean these days, these weeks. They have now, and again, so that if there is some centrist liberal here, I will not try to sell you some Al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda news bulletin or whatever, but you just have to read carefully the mainstream media and you learn this. Now it's the season of harvesting the olives, no? And the settlers are systematically, and we are talking about thousands of the trees, burning the trees of Palestinian farmers. On the top of it, there are many physical attacks, water poisoning, uh, uh, burning of houses, burning of the mosques, and so on. So... What have we to learn from this? The hypocritical game the Israeli state is playing. My friend Udi Aloni drew my attention to it. How masterfully they use their Supreme Court. You know, let's say you have 20 attacks. Every 20th attack is condemned by their Supreme Court. So that they can say, you see, we are a state of law, we and so on and so on. But nonetheless, basically, they tolerate the bulk of activity, you know. It's this nice game of claiming we are opposed, but nonetheless they tolerate it. And even a step further, Udi Aloni convinced me in this, don't be too angry at the poor settlers. Be angry at the, uh, at the Israeli state establishment which is playing games with them. These poor settlers are mostly East Europeans, they even didn't choose to live there, they were put by the state of Israel there, and now the state of Israel is manipulating them also, making them play the bad guys, you know. But what, again, what I find shocking is that, again, I'm not talking about Holocaust violence, but I'm talking about pretty real, and especially, this is important, systematic violence, which you should combine it with, uh, with uh, this, no, you, you remember, new explosion of West Bank settlements. What is crucial is look on the map. Where are these settlements? This is a, a, a deep sign. They, these settlements are not where you would expect them, close to existing settlements, so that then you may read it as, yes, they are preparing for the withdrawal and they just want to round up territory. They will not give back. No, they are on the contrary dispersed all around. This, I'm sorry to tell you, you don't do this when you plan to withdraw. So it's obviously that they are playing the game of just, you know, it should drag on, drag on till the fait accompli, no? till the West will, the West or even maybe other Arabs will, will accept it. And again, we should first, we should not be afraid here of all possible allies. I think that A, it's absolutely crucial to have all the progressive Jewish people. This is why, again, I speak, although he's sometimes as crazy as me, not like quite, but to my good friend Udi Aloni, who is doing something, and we get unexpected 
relatively honest people. Like, did you read in the media? If you didn't, it's typical how they unreported it again. How is called that village? No, you will get ra the racist aspect of me. I don't know all those names. Uh, the village, something with B close to the wall where they are demonstrating all the time. You know, okay, you know, which, you know who was there a month or two ago demonstrating on the Palestinian side? Jimmy Carter. Yeah, I mean, okay, hypocrite, whatever, but, you know, there is a kind of honesty. Why not use this? It's typical how try to mention Jimmy Carter, yeah, Jimmy Carter, the ex-president, today to the American, basically, establishment. He's already half an outcast, accused of whatever you want, anti-Semitism and so on and so on. Okay, so, again, wouldn't you agree that uh, we should learn this game, I claim, from the state of Israel, you know? You press it a little bit, why not? If the state is hypocritical, fuck it, we have the right to be. You do a little bit of violence, of course, not murderous violence, but what they were doing here, you smash a couple of windows, blah, 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 I'm sorry, but these are the rules set by our said by the way media function in our societies. You do this, then, when I'm totally for hypocrisy here, then of course you condemn it, you say, oh, it was probably the police provocation, whatever, no, and so on and so on. But my God, I'm sorry, you have to keep tension. Remember always this, those in power are always against violence. Yeah, because they are in power, you know. I mean... Violence can only mean within their state, violence against them. I remember, so that you will not accuse me of being crazy leftist here, how this was in the last years of communism, uh, when the opposition, the bad one, nationalist, brutally put it, the first three elections, the, uh, the goal of our uh, participation in elections is to throw out of power the communists. I remember the communists hypocritically said, oh, you see how obsessed they are with power, now they showed their cards, it's just about power, and so on. Here, the only maybe time in my life I was with the nationalist opposition, because, my God, you know, if you have power, it's easy to say this, no? Then to condemn the other, oh, you are only interested in power, and so on, and so on. Okay, but now... Enough of this initial outburst, whatever, no? Let, let's uh, do a little bit more systematically. Uh, which is, uh, uh, let me, I'm sorry if some of the things I start to hate, to hate uh, uh, Twitter and YouTube and so on, because, you know, like, so many of my stuff is then on YouTube, and then again and again I find myself in a situation of, this terrible fear, which is, I think, often justified that I may appear to you as a guy who, you know, this old crazy guy telling the same jokes again and again, and uh, then, haha, out of politeness, maybe sometimes you laugh, no. Okay, so let me do what I have to say. Uh, in China, so they say, if you really hate someone, the curse you address at him is... May you live in interesting times. Incidentally, I was in China and asked my friend Wang Hui, is this true? And he gave me a wonderful answer. He told me, yes, I read in the West about this. That, that we in China, no. Uh, 
But then, heroically, I told him, you know, this is the dialectic of identity. I mean, sometimes it is a good strategy to, to adopt, to identify with the false image of you. Like, I know, being for some time there for well-known reasons, the whole Argentinian identity, at least some honest Argentinians admitted this to me, it's based on, you know, when Argentina start to fight, you know, 1810 against uh, Spanish colonization, they were, to put it ironically, anachronistically, the, their PR people were looking for a good image of Argentina to base their identity. And the only thing they had is a couple of English travelers, uh, travelogues, where they, the Englishmen invented this myth, Argentina, gaucho, romantic, and so on, and they basically adopted it. And now it's the original Argentinian foundation. So why not? Okay, the curse is this. And in our history, we know what's the joke. Interesting times are effectively the times of unrest, war, with millions of innocent bystanders suffering the consequences. And the least one can say is that today we are definitely again entering a new epoch of interesting times. These interesting times are so interesting not because, that would be my point, not because ooh, something new is happening, but precisely what surprises us again and again is how the new and the old are mixed. What is really new is how the old persists, is reinvented. What do I mean by this? Uh, you know this famous saying, e pur si muove, and yet it moves, which I think is a very important wisdom to follow. Why? Because it's radically ambiguous. On the one hand, it can mean, and usually, usually it is taken like that as a kind of a brutal, primitive assertion of Ah, screw your theories, facts matter. You know, like, you can theorize whatever you want about the Earth, but the Earth moves around the sun, not vice versa. Because you know what's the legend, no? The legend is that Galileo said this after he was brought to, uh, he was brought to uh, Inquisition, and uh, I like this detail, as it is usually with intellectuals, they even didn't have to, torture him effectively. He was just taken on a tour of torturing machines. And then basically he said, yeah, yeah, I got the point. You convinced me with this evidence that the sun moves around the earth, no? And then, okay, the big thing being that on exiting he is supposed to murmur e pur si muove, nonetheless, you know, earth around the sun. This Saying in itself is interesting because it's absolutely clear today that he didn't say it, of course. The first time it is reported was, I think, around a hundred years, a hundred years afterwards and so on. But this brings us, this example itself, to its other meaning. It's not only a poor simuove in the sense of, but nonetheless, reality. Much more interesting for the functioning of ideology is the opposite. It's a pur si muove in the sense of you can demonstrate with facts, with whatever, that something is not true, but a pur si muove. The fiction continues to function. You know, exactly not a reality. Not, no matter what theories are, 
reality is what it is. It's much more interesting this other Pursimove, which is no matter how much it is clear at the level of facts that it's false, a Pursimove. It continues to it uh, continues to function. It continues to work. Like my classical example here, I will not repeat it, would have been based, you know, on don't be afraid. I will not tell you for probably the 15th time that chicken and Koran joke, whatever, but that would have been an example. Like, you may know that there is no God, but a Pursimove. No, you are. Or to take, again, the example of a Pursimove from Zionists today, uh, uh, this is what I like about uh, Israel. You know that it's the most atheist nation in the world. 60% of people don't believe in any God. But a Pursimove, that is to say, God doesn't exist. What's the basic reasoning of a typical atheist Zionist today? God doesn't exist, but nonetheless he gave us the land of Israel. No, I mean, you know. Okay, that's another story. So again, this aspect I find interesting. This a Pursimove at all levels. This is, I think that this is the true greatness of enlightenment. The first step of enlightenment is always this naive denouncing. No? Like, for example, what those naive uh, anti-religious Darwinists are doing from, from Dawkins, Dennett, and so on. But then you have the problem of a poor simuove, and here their analysis is not good enough. Uh, so uh, this fact brings great disorientation into our lives. What do I mean by this disorientation? Just look this strange, let's call it in dialectical terms, coincidences of opposites. Uh, again, in danger of if you follow YouTube, you may know this story, but I hope not. Uh, again, a story from my friend Udi Aloni. This is, I think, a wonderful story. Sorry if you know it. Uh, I learned it only two weeks ago, but there is YouTube. I used it a week ago in, in New York. He told me, Udi Aloni, a wonderful thing that happened to him a decade ago. He was in a taxi in New York, close to Union Square, uh, a couple of days after September 11th. And obviously there was a Muslim fundamentalist driver, taxi driver who started to convince him that September 11 is a Zionist plot with the well-known argument that don't you know, no Jews died uh, they were informed you know the story no? they were, all the Jews were informed a day ago blah blah. Okay Udi did whatever any normal person would have done he told politely to the driver sorry, I'm not taking this kind of insults please stop the taxi, I go out. So he went out and entered Union Square, where, you know, there are often, in the 50s, Union Square was the last communist meeting point, so there were groups there debating, and he saw a group of Orthodox Jews, one of them preaching to the others, saying what? Saying, return to the proper faith, Jews, we have now a new proof that God protects the Jewish people. And what is the proof? No Jews died on September 11th. So he was slightly perplexed, as my friend. He wanted to connect the two. You know, maybe they can find a similar language and so on and so on. It is this type of disorientation. And I like, when I was in Berlin, when was it, half a year ago, at that second part communism conference, one of our Berlin friends proposed this nice notion of 
notions of disorientation, notions which appear to clarify things, to be tool in political struggle, but effectively they introduce confusion. I mean, let's take human rights. Of course, who is not for human rights? My God, if you put it in those abstract terms, no? But nonetheless, you know, the way this notion effectively functions, by this I mean things being done on account of reference to human rights, show that this, the least one can say is that it's not enough just to say human rights. Like my usual story, where are human rights in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and so on and so on. So uh, this is why maybe some of you were there. It still shocked me. Some of you were there where? This summer at the that conference, how is it called, around the corner from here, where 3,000 crazy Marxists meet. Is it left forum or whatever? No, historical materialism, 10 people come, but the big, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the big one, you know. Marx, Marxism, whatever. Okay, I was there on a round table with John Holloway and uh, Alex Kalinikos. And I, how is it that he, Alex, maybe some of you who were there remember this, didn't notice it. He evoked his dream of a future communist society. He said, I'm dreaming about the time, if I will be still here, of course he wasn't, I wanted to say, he will not be, where, in which... There will be no capitalism, but just museums of capitalism, displaying to public some artifacts of this irrational and inhuman social formation. But I told him, you may remember if I was there, but are you aware of the irony of this? Today there are, you are saying this as a communist, dreaming of a future, but today there are museums of communism doing exactly what you say. I was there. For example, in Budapest, and I bought some things, which I use even today. I bought some 50 candles of Stalin hat. It's wonderful. You light it, and Stalin, this is anti-Stalinism in practice, and Stalin melts down. I mean, what more do you want? Uh, but what I'm saying is that in such a confused situation, now we come to a little bit more touchy things. In such a confused situation, such a confused situation, you may think uh, it's very important to decide to make the right strategic decision, which fights to take and how to intervene into them. For example, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, as a matter of fact, to be precise, October 17th, when the German Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, declared, you know, the famous statement, this multicultural approach, saying that we simply live side by side and live happily with each other, had failed, utterly failed. Now to shock you a little bit, worse will come very soon. Uh, I agree with her. But, uh, 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 of course, otherwise what I'm doing here, I should move somewhere when they would pay me properly and so on. <laughs> uh, uh, of course, not in a way she meant. What I want to say is that, so that first you will not accuse me of playing right-wing populism. My God, you remember, and we brought me, it brought me many hate mail. I, when did they publish it? About three weeks ago, I think, in The Guardian, that text, uh, uh, that text precisely about attacking ruthlessly this new right-wing populism all around 
Europe. And I use very nicely, I think, that Robert Brazilach plea for rational anti-Semitism, claiming that what now even the majority accepts it's the same, let's call it, rational anti-immigrant racism. Like, you know, we love them, but precisely to prevent violence, we should do some preventive measures and so on and so on. But what I'm... Uh, what do I find? Pro it's typical. Now, probably it was just a technicality. But nonetheless, I'm a little bit paranoid as a good Stalinist here. I sent them, Guardian, then a week later, part two. And they didn't want... Okay, also, probably, I understand this. I mean, you probably have and you should have a certain rule, like you don't publish too often one guy. But nonetheless, it's interesting how almost nobody wanted to publish my second part, which was basically in defense of the notion of light culture. You know, light culture, horrible. You already, you will say, can smell the Nazis behind, no, burning. Like this idea that you have to have a dominant culture. But isn't this a lesson that, here is my proposal. This purely liberal notion of multiculturalism, which is, each of us, a particular culture and just some legal space where we can coexist with each other. This effectively doesn't work. We need more. Why be afraid of... I, I propose that instead of playing this liberal bourgeois game, we should say no. Yes, no, we don't play that game. We are for light culture, leading culture, but we... We sh we, and the fight is what will this culture be and we have to fight to impose our culture. Isn't it clear even here, if you follow in this country the debate about, you know, is there a, who are your bad guys, Pakistani, I don't know who. I mean, it's interesting already how this changes, you know. This shows you perfectly the ideological, irrational in this sense, character of anti-immigrant racism how it changes, you know. For example, let me be critical. My own country, Slovenia, we are now entering a third phase, I claim. The first phase was in old Yugoslavia where Albanians were the bad guys. No, dirty Albanians, they monopolized uh, the uh, ice cream parlors in Ljubljana. <laughs> and it was always a meat like, are you, are you eating their ice cream? Are you sure they are done putting some poison in it? This was the silent fear, you know, and of course, you... It was wonderful to notice the practice of everyday racism, how even my leftist friends you know, said, I know this is a meat, but nonetheless better don't take that ice cream, you know, cream, you know, like, je sais bien, mais quand même, no? <laughs> uh, so this was the first phase. The second phase were the Serbs, Milosevic, and all of a sudden, Albanians became good guys. It was incredible in one year. The moment the main tension is ex-Yugoslavia was with the Serbs, Albanians, now Serbs are coming back in a way. As against Albanians who are again perceived as annoying, but especially against Croats, no? Because we have some ridiculous minor border conflict, no? And it's, this is the fiasco of Slovenia, entire politics, how basically both the left and the right, so-called left, uh, accepted this even as a serious issue. And, you know, you score points at elections by claiming, you know, all this bullshit, not a feat of Slovene earth, will, and so on. And uh, so I'm more and more convinced that 
based on this incident that the best definition of a nation was provided by, you know, the French historian, anthropologist Ernst Renan. He was not good politically. He was basically anti-Semitic nationalist. This kind of a positivist nationalism, which is one of the most disgusting things. You know that in the age of naturalism and positivism, you had very apparently anti-religious positivist nationalists who said, no, no, we are scientists. We just study national characters. We can establish objectively which nation is higher. But nonetheless, he did one thing. He provided, and sorry if you know it, the best definition of a nation that I know. It is, the nation is a group of people who share, A, the same lies about their past, B, the same hatred of the present neighbors, and C, the same illusions about their future. I don't know how it is with you. For us, Slovenes, it definitely goes. We share lies about our past, which is, you know, if you talk through with real Slovene nationalists, we are not only not the same type of Slavs as the Serbs, Southern Slavs, we are not even Slavs at all. We are Etruscans. We are basically the base of civilization, Rome, before even there was Rome. So we are the true cradle of civilization there. Uh, again, hatred of Croats now, more or less, and illusions about future, which is, if it were not for ex-communists still secretly pulling the strings, Slovenia would already have been better than Switzerland. This is the secret dream of uh, of you of uh, Incidentally, yes, you will hear obscenities today before I go to work. We have time, no? Yeah. Uh, uh, especially since, you know, now, now you will get a little bit of racism, but progressive racism from me. Uh, you know, do you know the story? Once I was in Switzerland, and we had a debate, Marxist debate about concrete social conditions of sexual practices. That is to say, we, you know, in Europe, I don't know how you are here, every country is identified nation with a certain sexual practice. Like, if you say to your girl friend or male, let's do it the Italian way. I don't know how they say in Italy. At least in my part in Germany, Italian way means anally. Like, can I do it up your blah, blah. If you say Spanish way, it means between the breasts. Now then we debated what would be the Swiss way. And I noticed a great disorientation there. They didn't know. <laughs> a Swiss friend of mine said, oh, maybe you don't even need a woman, you masturbate with money and something. I said, no, no, no. I said, you don't take into account your progressive legacy, which is, you know what is Swiss army knife? This knife where you have some ten. I said, imagine Swiss army wife. You know, like, with one hand masturbates, masturbates with other, all that. And they graciously accepted this example of rich multicultural collaboration, you know, whatever. So, again, uh, now a much more serious thing. Don't you agree that, take here in the UK debates about immigrants and so on, the true debate is not what we say what they are. The true debate is what kind of common space we share. Who will define the very shared space? And our attack on... I propose to go a step further. Our attack, for example, when you have those jerks who claim, you know, uh, 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 we need a light culture, but in this narrow nationalist sense, like, to cut a long story short, uh, 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 in our societies, Judeo-Christian 
uh, orientation should have a clear priority. Incidentally, I don't often agree with Habermas, but he made now a big comment on this where he nicely, I don't know if you know, he drew attention to one fact. Namely, he says, these guys, right-wing nationalists, just remember what they did to Jews 60 years ago. How dare they now? They don't have any moral right to use the term Judeo-Christian civilization after trying to get rid of Europe of Jews. But what I want to say is that what we, the way we should fight them, it's not only, no, it's intolerant towards immigrants and so on, but to go to a step further, there is something, maybe up to a point critically, worth fighting for, like let's call it the democratic European light culture of dialogue, blah, blah. They are the true traitors of European legacy. They, they don't belong into our light culture. It's not, just the, it's not just the question of how immigrants are treated. The way we treat immigrants is the way we define what we are. You see my point. We should accept the struggle. I think it's absolutely crucial at that level. We should make a step further from this bourgeois liberal topic, we and others, how tolerant we are. The moment you put it only as tolerating differences, of course, at this level, you get into a typical liberal deadlock, because, of course, if you put it just in this level, at this level of differences, you, of course, always encounter a difference. And then you get caught into this boring liberal topic, but what if my Muslim neighbor is beating his wife, should I, you know, all these preferred dreams of Western liberals. <laughs> What I always suspect, what they would secretly, that it's kind of an inter-passive inter pleasure, you know. They would like to beat their wives, but they are too shitty. Now I am consciously playing with male chauvinist cliches. They are too weak cowards, so they at least can imagine another one. Be, whatever. So, seriously, what I'm saying is that, uh, of course, at this level, you always can say, okay, do we make a compromise? How much we tolerate? No, the only way to get out of this liberal deadlock, how much, how much, then of course there is a limit. But this is not all. The way to overcome this limit, it's not to be, in this sense, totally tolerant. And then what will you say? Oh, even if they are raping their daughters, which they are not, or whatever, I will say nothing on behalf of cultural tolerance or whatever. This is a pseudo-topic. The way to do it is to establish a positive shared field of struggle. It's difficult, but it can be done. Let me give you an example again from, I hate him, but this is uh, in a friendly way, Udi Aloni. He told me that he went to that same B-city, I don't know what's name, on the West Bank. He did something which was limited, but he told me he started to cry there. It was a wonder. He organized some Jewish from Israel, from Tel Aviv, lesbians with their crazy dressing, blah, blah. No, I'm not a racist here. You will see why I mentioned this. To go there to defend Palestinians. And he told me, and he told me something incredible happened. There were these uh, fundamentalists, if you want, half-covered Muslim women who first look upon the, these Jewish lesbians as a kind of a freaks, you know. My God, when they were shot together, I mean, part of the same group shot by uh, this, uh, uh, how do you call them, uh, the, the rubber bullets used by Israeli army, all of a sudden one started to protect the other, and something wonderful happened, a kind of a 
Solidarity in struggle were simply a new respect was developed. It was incredible how quickly one fight with Israeli soldiers was enough in practice to convince these women that uh, uh, maybe there is a, this is the way to fight it, not these endless games. This at least seems to me crucial. Uh, so to make even to go even a step further, recently some friends of mine drew my attention to the fact that there is a big polemic against me on some websites, even though one is Marxist-Leninist, something, to cut a long story short, decrying me as, I'm not kidding, go there, as extremely violent Slovene racist nationalist who advocates the expulsion of uh, Romas, gypsies, uh, and again, they approach me already for that that I always Roma and then explain, I mean gypsies as if. Uh, and, okay, there was their main, apart from this being a sheer madness, this attack, in what sense? In the sense that, my God, do, they, do we live in the same space? Let them go to Slovenia and to see how the right-wing, now even mainstream media treat me as an extremely, uh, extremely anti-nationalist extremist, extremist, I'm attacked more or less, more or less continuous on this behalf as nationalist, nihilist, and so on and so on. As to, as to, uh, but I did say something where there is a lesson that they don't want to hear. And this pa passage, which I totally improvised, is quoted against me, namely, there was two years ago, I think, a uh, 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 problem close to some Slovene town, there was a gypsy camp, however you call it, extended family, and local people there started to demonstrate against them, move them, and so on. Uh, what shocked me is the following, and I still fully stand by it. What shocked me was not neither of these two, neither the local anti-immigrant racist, nor the Roma, but uh, the reaction of the large majority of liberal intelligentsia, who of course were full of rage against oh, those fascists there, but of course, and here I'm not bluffing, when they say that, oh, lie, 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 no, I checked it up. I tried to do something, not to, my God, not to protect or justify them. But I tried to do something which one always has to do. I tried, imagine, to put myself into the skin of those local people there. Were they anti-immigrants? Yes. But here comes the but, which is not from the right-wing media, but I was lucky that the babysitter whom I hired to take care of my small monster son and with whom I have good relations, much more than, uh, than just paying her. She also worked a long time as a, how do you call it, social worker, precisely with those gypsies, Roma. And incidentally, they themselves slightly prefer to be called gypsies, you know. So fuck it when you tell me this, that you use the term, use the term Roma. No, it's the same as, you know, African-Americans, no? But what they... At least some of them. What they, she told me is this, that, of course, don't idealize them. At a certain level, it is true. 
they are living there in a camp which has no legal status. They, their main income is trading stolen cars. They definitely do, she confirmed this to me, still, uh, uh, still from the fields around and so on and so on. So instead of doing something, but by bringing them together with local people and at least in a certain modest liberal way, try to organize, you know, bring them together. You can do some, some stupid cultural meeting, blah, you know, just bring them together so that each discovers the humanity of the others and so on and so on. Because no liberals did anything of that. And then, of course, you got caught into this cycle of violence. So then something ingenious happened in Slovenia. Uh, sorry, uh, yes, uh, a friend of mine proposed in a Slovene journal something wonderful. In the south of Ljubljana, there is a kind of a, called Murgle, upper scale part of the city with small villas, which is one of the rich people's housings. Close to it, south of it, between this rich part section and some small mountain, there is a big green empty how do you call it? Grass, just grass field, just grass. And the idea was, why don't we give the Roma that land? No, it's totally free, no other use, blah, blah, blah. Oh my God. You, you should have listened to the big liberal defenders at that point. You know, it's nice to defend the Roma when they are up there far away. But everybody looked like, are you crazy? Is this a bad joke? No, why should it be a joke? Move them there. You are so tolerant with them, you can have them there. You can imagine how immediately nobody even wanted to talk. It, 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 it's as if, you know. You, you, so again, uh, the serious problem here is the following one. This is the limit of, of uh, multiculturalism. This is the limit of this liberal multiculturalism, which what I wanted to draw attention to is, and that's the tragedy of multiculturalism, how? The whole space is constructed with a clear class dimension. It's always upper middle class, or at least middle class, who is blaming the pure redneck ordinary guys for being racist to enjoy their privilege up there. And nobody, the moment I mention this class aspect, which is clearly here, I become a proto-fascist right-winger or whatever or whatever. No, I mean, uh, the, again, uh, the problem when we fight racism is it's the same as the Israeli settlers, you know. See the whole picture, identify the real culprits. Don't focus on the poor, confused guys there, whom I understand it's so easy for an upper-class liberal living in the rich part not to see, I'm not saying, I repeat it for the third time, I'm not saying they are not right. I'm not saying they are not guilty also, in a way. But imagine a typical modest guy from that village. His son comes often beaten, not, not too often, but there is this fear, occasional fights with, with Roma children, Things are stolen from the field, and so on, and so on. There even was a murder in that uh, uh, gypsy 
settlement and uh, what what was offered to these people nothing just culpabilizing them and this is why then we then we get where we are which is the greatest tragedy in all of europe today that did you notice how this is the story from eastern europe to the best of Europe, Scandinavian countries. This new rise of anti-immigrant politics with an especially strong base among the poor and the working class. This is absolutely crucial first task, I think, to, to break this alliance between, again, anti-immigrant nationalism and the local. Because this is the classical constellation then. We know it. You make a conflict between Lower classes between home, native, let's call them workers, and immigrants, and who is the true culprit? Those up who stay out of the... This is what I wanted to do. Okay? As for the gypsies, you can imagine with my dirty taste, I love, I learned from their wonderful jokes, which even I use now often to make a point of this Hegelian temporality, of logical temporality, you know, the same as my, don't be afraid, I will not repeat it again, uh, Rabinovich joke, you know that, I want to emigrate. <laughs> a, a, a Roma friend of mine told me this one, oh, they can be funny, they are not primitive, really. How, uh, it only works, but I will explain it to you in Serbo-Croat, how uh, they make fun of them. Uh, this was from Yugoslav times. Uh, Roma, a gypsy, serves the army, and the officer wants to educate him, like this primitive gypsies and so on. So he said, I will teach you poetry. I will explain to you things about poetry. So he tells him, uh, the Roma, uh, uh, I will give you an example of a rhyme. And then, unfortunately, it only works in Serbo-Croat, Rhein, Igram balalaiku, jebem tvoju majku. Which means, I play balalaika, I screw your mother. It rhymes, no? And the gypsy said, yeah, I got it. And I have another example. Uh, uh, I, I play balalaika, I screw your wife. Which also in Serbo-Croat doesn't rhyme. And then the officer uh, says back, but you didn't get me, idiot. This is not a rhyme. And then comes the wonder. The gypsy says, Nie rima alie istina, in like, he says, it's not a rhyme, but it's true. Which rhymes? That's the point. Which rhymes? You know. It's true, this redoublement that he, this is Hegelian spirit, my God, among the, this is how you become friends with gypsies. Not through some multicultural bullshit, show me your culture. This is their culture, my God, no? So, Things are dialectical, as you can see. Okay, so uh, 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 okay, you know, I ah. So now this would be my first point, where we should break with liberal consensus. Uh, accept light. We don't only need tolerance; we need a culture of tolerance shared which is a culture of its own. We shouldn't be afraid of this. It's not just being open towards the other. We should be open towards the other in the sense of participating in the same struggle and so on and so on. So let, so let me go a step further now. Uh, as I already emphasized, even here, uh, the, the second step where should be, we should be very careful, as it were today, is 
anti-capitalism. Yes, we should be anti-capitalist. But, and it's typically how, when I developed this line at the same conference where Kalinikos was talking about uh, dream, about, about his dream of museums of communism, uh, sorry, uh, capitalism, uh, this also happened to me. When I developed this line, an old Trotskyite kite, who usually attacks me after these talks, also attacked me, claiming horrible bullshit, how can I claim it? What did I say? I said that we even have an overload of anti-capitalism today. But I immediately added overload of fake, legal, moralistic anti-capitalism. What do I mean by this? Open up the media, my God. Almost every day you get uh, this factory is polluting environment. That factory is using trade, uh, child labor. The other one is, I don't know, that bank is involved in uh, whatever speculations and we have then to step in the state that is to say taxpayer and so on. Okay, okay, I agree with this. But did you notice how this anti-capitalism, which I like also to call Hollywood anti-capitalism, because, you know, in Hollywood today, you can make a pretty tough anti-capitalist movies. And there must be something wrong in this anti-capitalism when you can make a big official hit with them. Like, take a movie like, I really hate the guy, uh, I was never fascinated by the firm, John Grisham Pelican Brief. You have a corrupted capitalist who is even linked directly to the president. Like, you can openly make a movie where the corruption reaches up to the top. But what's the problem? The problem is the legal moralistic limit. It's never a question of system. It's a question of individuals who are corrupted and so on and so on, which is why these films always end with a kind of a, how should I call it, a feeling good situation, you know. The ideology is which one? It's best expressed in maybe the mother of all this Hollywood left, uh, all the president's men. The, 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 the report, even more the movie. The president is corrupted, everything. Yes, but why do you leave the movie with soft, almost crying feeling in your heart? Because the, the ideology is in the fundamental message, which is, but look what great country of freedom we are. Two ordinary journalists can overthrow the president. And here, true questions began. I mean, after I saw that movie, for the first time I became almost sympathetic to Nixon. <laughs> because I seriously think, and this is not a plot theory, I mean, it's almost accepted today by large majority that what interests me is, you know, in the same sense that I say you need a little bit of controlled violence as a push. Okay, okay, Bernstein and Woodward did, but where did that additional push come that Nixon had to step down? I claim it's clearly that with his pro-China politics and so on and so on, Nixon went a little bit too far for the establishment. He must have gotten... I mean, his enemies must have got, it's, to use the Freudian term, it's over-determination. To put it in Marxist terms, Woodward and Bernstein attack, Watergate was the uh, directly dominant factor. But we as Marxists should be interested in the factor which was, how do they put it, determining in the last instance. <laughs> and these were not them. So, uh, 
what I want to focus on is precisely this ethical good feeling that you get even in the utmost extreme uh, Hollywood right. Sorry, left. Now you will say, but okay, should we then abandon the media? Now please listen carefully because now you will get, let's call it, uh, the moment of madness. Uh, where do we find something more? Not in the sense of a positive program, but at least in the sense of more ruthless presentation of the actual deadlocks without any of this feeling good pacification at the end. Now I will do in the good Stalinist way a radical self-critique, self because I wrote a very stupid text, I think it was published years ago in The Guardian, The Himmlers of Hollywood or something like that, criticizing 24. Self-critique, I support 24. Why? Ah, before you think, oh, another of his crazy eccentric things, let me see. Did you watch the last two seasons, seven and eight? Okay, I didn't all of them, I but nonetheless, what I did, I discovered some very interesting features. First, already at the level of the plot, in both meanings of the term, plot as narrative and plot as Jewish plot or terrorist plot, uh, Season 7 enacts a very simple but effective shift from external to internal enemy. You know, it starts with bombings killing hundreds and it's presented as a Muslim terrorist plot. Then, the whole point, the main narrative line of the series is Jack Bauer's gradual discovery that effectively those Muslims uh, they were not even Muslims, it was just planted onto the Muslims, but that behind it is really the attempt of a U.S. military corporation dealing with arms and mercenaries, something like our beloved Halliburton and so on, uh, to throw the country into panic and thus to secure for itself a key role in the government. A move admitted in the best tradition of at least the standard leftist films. So again, it's not really the external terrorist threat, it's our own military establishment. So when in the final episode of season seven, Jack Bauer thinks that he is dying of being exposed to radiation, whom does he call to his deathbed? A Muslim priest whom he earlier has mistakenly accused of helping the terrorists, and it's, I'm not saying it's mega, but it's a very effective melodrama. Like, you know, all those tough guys and ask when they came to visit Jack Bauer, but what's that guy here? And he says with simple dignity, he's my friend. Like, the only one who, okay, it's a little bit cheap, melodramatic, but it's nice. Now, but this is still, okay, Hollywood, main Hollywood left. But it goes further. What I like is how 24 renders visible in these last seasons, 7 and 8, the utmost ethical confusion of Jack Bauer's position. The priest's visit, when he thinks he is dying, provides no inner peace. Jack Bauer admits to the priest that he is not at all sure he was doing the right thing, and that all he can do is live with it, being haunted by his past deeds to the end of his days. So what is crucial is that there is no easy solution offered. No, 
I was doing it for the common good, and so on and so on. Even less the Alan Dershowitz solution of legalizing torture. Uh, again, because, uh, again, I think I was totally wrong in my text, where I accused 24 of playing this game of humanizing them. You know, they are doing the tough job, but look, they suffer, they are humans like us. No, there is precisely, at least in the last seasons, no game like, no, no humanizing. The point is not, it's a tough job, somebody has to do it, and we pay the price for it. Uh, no, Bauer's only true ally outside his own anti-terrorist unit becomes a senator who was investigating his own, Bauer's, illegal activity. And he is then killed also. And the finale of the last season leaves the central ethical issue even more unresolved. In order to save the world peace, the woman president incident in the series, Alison Taylor, endorses the killing of Bauer himself, but then breaks down after informing him of her acts and giving him time to disappear, she resigns, confesses publicly her acts, and is ready to face justice. And this is what I appreciate. This ethico-political contradiction, which is simply presented as unresolvable, both poles, the president and Jack Bauer, the legal state power and its hidden obscene counterpart, had to retreat. There is no way out. There is no way to feel good morally. I really appreciate this, again, how Bauer simply said, maybe I was crazy what I was doing, I have to live with it, you know. He rejects all this attempt, no, 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 you were doing it for the good of the country. All this humanization, which, for example, makes for me so disgusting Steven Spielberg's uh, Munich, no? They had to do it, but look at all their traumas, and so on, and so on. I think that this position... Again, to repeat my old story, this position I find the only honest today. This position that if we remain within the framework of the existing coordinates, there is no way out. Because, you know, for the liberals it's easy to claim absolutely no torture. I agree, and so on. If liberals were not all too often playing this game of, you know, no torture, which means do it, but so that I don't know, don't notice it, and so on and so on. What uh, the most you can do is just to present this total ethical confusion. No one is, uh, no one is uh, covered here. So this finally brings me to the issue of violence. Since I've already spoken much too long. I will simply skip over the part, some new things that I have on, uh, on ecology, on ecology, about the lesson of all these events, events about how, when I mentioned this moralistic legal anti-capitalism, how here precisely I see also the limit of President Obama. Incidentally, I still have a certain sympathy for him, so if you ask me frankly, I don't like Tariq Ali's book against Obama, and I share this dislike with Alain Badiou, who told me, I have, no, no, now comes the paradox. I agree with his analysis, how, you know, Obama is not, but fuck him, what did he expect? That Obama will be a communist socialist president or what? It's, 
fundamentally a useless book, I claim. It makes us feel good. You see, this is what I want to avoid. Ooh, a big leftist come and demonstrates Obama didn't, what, do the real socialist revolution or what, and so on. It's so cheap. It just co confirms your feeling good. Look rather at Obama, it's a tragic limitation of what you can do and obviously what you cannot do. And, like, shit, you, you know, I find it way too easy to do that. But nonetheless, again, the critical point of Obama for me was the way, you maybe know the story, the way he reacted to, you know, the British Petroleum stuff. You remember, I already mentioned it. How he translated it directly into this moral legalistic, kick the BP, they will have to pay for it. My God, the problem is not legal moralistic of who will pay. The problem is our whole way of life. As I already said here, I think, even once, uh, not that I want to defend BP, but it may also have happened to another company. They're probably all using the, sh the same shitty equipment and so on. So, you know, don't go onto the... It was accidentally that this just happened to BP. So, isn't it time to, to ask slightly more fundamental question, questions? Yesterday, because of the jet lag, I couldn't sleep and I watched a late night debate on your, I don't know which one, BBC one, two, on ecology, where it was a very nice debate, some, where it was a very nice example of class struggle in ecology between technocratic ecologists who claim, no, the problem is not social, the problem is new scientific inventions from fusion reactors and so on. That is to say, those who basically want totally to, basically to depoliticize ecology, to claim, no, don't mess your, when you are trying to ask systemic questions, they tell you, don't mess your stupid, outdated ideology, this can all be solved with new, with new scientific discoveries. Of course, science can do a lot here, but not all. There are social choices, large-scale decisions to be made. So, okay, let me just briefly conclude now with another, okay, whatever, uh, uh, violence. You know, first, the first thing I think we should do is to uh, learn to locate violence. Where is violence? Uh, what do I mean by this? It's not a question of, as I'm often accused to, of legitimizing violence. Like now, all of a sudden, we should again look positively at violence. No. The first step is to recognize violence where it is. And we, I'm just trying, what I'm trying, where it already is. I'm just trying to do here what was, the way I see it, the founding gesture of feminism, which was before even you fight women for your rights, you have to discover or make it clear the very extent of your oppression. You know, the first gesture is to change your experience and the experience of others, which finds features which we now hopefully perceive as oppression of women as just part of the no, part of normal life. So, in religion, for example, I will give you a very, I don't think I already used it, a very brutal example. I am terrified, I admit it, by what Chinese are doing in Tibet. But I read in a book on 
Tibet, published by Verso, The Struggle for Tibet. I found there, and then when I was in China, I asked my friends there, dissident friends, very sympathetic to Tibet, if this is true. And they told me, yes. Just as a tool to, I mention this just to, you know, to dispel any illusions about Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, they told me that uh, in, uh, before 1950s, basically till 59, there was in Tibet a certain custom, which was on their narrow mountain road, if a lower class and a high guy, guy sorry, a lower class person and a higher class person, let's say a nobleman and a poor peasant, met, not only had the peasant to step back, but he had to do a certain gesture to signal his utter self-abasement, like I'm nobody. It's very humiliating. The basically, he has to not only to bow down, but to somehow uh, stuck his tongue out and turn up like, to appear an extreme stupid idiot. Now, no way you will make me buy this as, no, you shouldn't condemn me, this is Eurocentrism, no, this is their original culture. What fuck, ori what fuck original culture? I mean, this is brutal humiliation. We should learn to recognize violence where it is. The second aspect, animal rights. I mean, I'm not becoming a pit singer. Don't be afraid of that. But nonetheless, you know, I read recently this book by Derrida, and it has a nice point, namely that uh, to what extent our everyday life even is based on this fetishist disavowal, je sais bien mais quand même, of we know what we are doing to animals. And I don't even like those stories of laboratories because they are the exception. You know, what we are doing, not only in the laboratories, but every day, you know how chicken are grown, you know how pigs are grown, it's a nightmare. But how do we survive? Like, again, we know it, but we act as if we do not know. And Derrida has here a wonderful description in this book, Cet animal, This Animal That I Am, of this kind of a primordial scene when a wounded animal looks at you. And he makes a nice, almost Lacanian point, that this is the primordial gaze of the other. And then he makes a wonderful stab at Levinas Derrida, how? With all his blah blah, you know, the gaze of the other, the other's wounded face, the primordial ethical call, how Levinas explicitly excludes animals from it. And here I'm a little bit uh, sentimental in the sense that I remember, I'm not kidding now, why shouldn't I be a little bit sentimental? I remember years ago I saw a photo of pub in mass media of a cat immediately after this cat was submitted to some rather unpleasant uh, experiment under the under this experiment was under the pretext of uh, testing uh, how a living organism how much pressure and uh, heat can it endure uh, it's not immediately clear to me how this would help people he was put it was put the cat in a sentry, turning like crazy, and then what you got at the end was was a cat with literally broken limbs. On the top of it, almost this was most shocking for me. Most of the hair was gone, and then, but it was still alive, the cat, and just 
looking into the camera. And here I would like to ask the Hegelian question. What did the cat see in us? What kind of a monster did? This is the truth, no? What, not what the cat is for us, all this sentimental question, ooh, a nice cat, but what we were for the cat at that point. This monstrosity is something to, is something to think about. So again, another ignored violence. Incidentally, uh, uh, here, what are we? Humans for animals, what kind of monsters we are. Today, in Guardian, I read a wonderful, crazy text, and here almost I also become this kind of a right-winger, don't finance the rubbish of, but you will see why. They report seriously a guy on some big research, at, I think it's Harvard, they did a big research, costed millions on what makes people happy and unhappy? And you know what was the result? That, I mean, I, uh, like, they spent millions to come to the result that what people makes happy most is a good sex. And what they, they makes them unhappy is they, if they only fantasize, dream about it instead of doing it. I could have told them this for one million, for example. <laughs> I would be ready. But... But why am I mentioning this? Because even at this level, it's wrong. The whole point is people should act more. You know, you are happy when you have conversation with friends, when you make love, blah, blah, and think daydreaming. Day, day the, 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 the motto is make love more, daydream about it less. Totally wrong. Because people, with us, the problem is that if you take away daydreaming, you no longer have sex, you have a nightmare. I mean, that's the basic point of Lacan. This is the monstrosity of the humans. This is why we can sustain so much violence and so on, because fantasy is always here. So again, to conclude, how does then violence, in what sense, here we have to recognize violence. You see, the first move should be to, to recognize violence, not just when, where it is seen, but where it is already here, as the condition of our daily normal, so to speak, life. Which means that I find here a little bit problematic Alain Badiou's idea that the left, he of course refers to the catastrophic uh, results of the 20th century, totalitarian terror and so on, that the left should renounce its obsession with with violent taking over of the state power and, you know, practice this politics of subtraction to, as it were, establish free territories outside state power simply and use violence only as a defensive measure. This sounds okay, but I think but you goes here one step too far in not talking at least about how, from a serious Marxist standpoint, the f when you don't have violence in a society, this means that you already have violence used precisely to maintain this non-violence. So I think you concede already too much to the enemy when you say we will not, we will use violence only when we are attacked. But in some sense, my God, we are always attacked. 
The very fact, of, sorry, but this is the lesson of what old Marxists called class struggle. The, the very peace is already violent victory of one side. So I'm not saying we should always shoot back and so on. What I'm saying is only that we should become aware of seeing this violence, which, is, which again complicates a little bit things. We cannot get out of violence. I know we should not just use violence, but here I propose again from my friend Udi Aloni a wonderful reversal of uh, the standard liberal wisdom, which is this happened at the conference in New York where my good friend Simon Critchley, haha, was advocating, he said, violence is sometimes necessary, but never legitimate. This is the big liberal wisdom, you know. Never it should be allowed, but maybe, maybe sometimes if there is really no other way, no, and then we are there. You decide when it's no other way, so, be, okay. Then Udi Aloni answered him, it was wonderful, I was told, and he said, no, for the oppressed, it's exactly the opposite. Violence, violence is always legitimate, but never necessary. You have an a priori right, because you are, by definition, in a position of the victim of violence, but it's never really necessary. You know, you can almost always say, wait a minute, maybe it's better not to, maybe, and so on, and so on. So, what does this mean? In his intervention on the same Kalinikos forum that I already mentioned, John Holloway, just returning from Greece, mentioned as an example of practicing communism, a pair park, maybe you know this, coming from that evil part of Europe where you want to ruin European community by spending our money and so on. Sorry, this is how I treat my friends, Greeks, not lies, I know. Okay, but he mentioned, at least I hope you will agree here with me, a, a, a park which Holloway said was taken over by the demonstrators and proclaimed a liberated zone with posters announcing no entry to capitalism, like no commercialization was proclaimed, was allowed, people just freely gathered, danced, and so on, and so on. Well, my reaction was, if they were intelligent, all capitalists should celebrate and even construct more such parks where people can relax and are in this way made more fit when after a nice evening in this park you, you return, you return to, to your job. No? Uh, again, uh, this, uh, our direction should not be that this kind of a game of liberated zones fits perfectly, I think, with how power structures today. Why? I more and more suspect that this is the other side of the topic of homo sacer. Please don't understand me. I will go to Greece and so on to support them. It's just that, you know, as in the same way as they said for Arafat, that he never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. No, it was unfortunately all too often true. I never miss an opportunity to make a tasteless remark. Okay, no, but seriously. Uh, uh, my point is that uh, I claim that uh, the other side of this obsession with uh, homo sacer and so on is also that the system more and more, the system, global system today, can less and less, I claim, function as a totality, not in the Hegelian, but in the simple sense of covering it all. 
So it more and more needs edge territories. And it's well aware that in this way you get rid of, for example, by great example, and I checked it again with my Latino friends, and I uh, admitted this, uh, but your own example of these liberated territories where you use power only to defend yourself is Chiapas, Zapatistas. Again, I made contacts with people who were there, and they told me it started good. It turned into a catastrophe, more or less, the moment they decided to play the game of just non-violent moral authority. Then ev now everyone loves them, of course, because they are not really a danger. So that's for me the problem. Even in this way, if you allow some excluded territories, they can be slums, they can be... If you allow ice islands outside brutal commodification, it makes commodification all the more efficient and so on and so on. Another point, I hope you will agree with me here, this is my favorite example, uh, where, uh, I, you, maybe you read it in the, I think it's no longer the last issue of London Review of Books, I did a review of a wonderful French, uh, sorry, a book on Chinese Communist Party, of how, this is what really intrigued me, like, how does it function? Because this book appeared, I bought it even on an airport on my way to China. And then I tried to empirically verify it, talking to friends there, and more or less, you know, the detail that I like, I mentioned it in the essay, is how nicely it confirmed my uh, old idea about this obscenity of power. For example, it's reported that, you know, you have one clear sign in China that you belong to the, to the elite. It's so-called red machine. It's a limited network of 5,000 phone, phones. If you are in, you must have one number on that network. Only top ministers, managers, whatever, have it. But then, the author of the book, and I, it was confirmed to me, I asked some people there also, like, what is going on on this red machine? And I got the same answer in China as that guy in the book, you know. It's not what you think, you know, the phone rings, important change of the party line. No. They told me over 80% of the talks are like, the phone rings, listen, I have a mistress in Beijing, could you arrange for an apartment for her? Listen, my daughter wants to go to study to United States, can you, you know. It's this, it immediately reminded me of Kafka's, Castle. You remember when K, the geometer, whatever, uh, 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 by mistake is connected with the castle network, and what he sees, hears there, some obscene moaning, hardcore, whatever. No, but what is more interesting, and this is crucial. This is, if you want, the danger, but at the same time, the challenge of our politics today. This is how we do progressive violence, where we have to invent our violence. At what level? What I learned from that book about China is the following, that uh, 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 I think Alain Badiou is wrong here. My best friend is slightly wrong. Where? I think. With his, obs his obsession with the formula of what was wrong with the 20th century was the party state, full identification of the party with the state, so that we have to reintroduce a new politics at a distance from the state. Sorry to tell him and you, but the whole, if you read it closely, 
Where did he live, Alain? The whole communist and especially Maoist experience of being in power was, and this was the basic difference between their politics of communists in power and let's call it the bourgeois democracy, was politics at a distance from the state. You know where you can get the first sign of this? And this, you should read that book. You can find references in my non-review books article. First, you know, whenever you have communist dignitaries visiting something or blah, 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 you know that the official term is the highest members of party and state leadership were also there. Always this order, party and state. And uh, pa the, the position of the party here was very weird. On the one hand, it is not, it is in a, in a true communist state, the party is always never fully integrated with the state, but always keeps a kind of, like in China, this is a wonderful discovery of this book. Uh, he, the guy who wrote it, uh, was shown a wonderful document by a Chinese dissident who wanted to prosecute the Chinese party for some blah 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 crimes, Tiananmen killings, and he got the answer of a lifetime from, uh, from the court. They told him, we don't understand it, whom are you prosecuting? We looked at our legal system, no organization called Communist Party exists. You know that in China, Communist Party doesn't exist as a legal entity. It's pure, a purely spectral, in the best Deridian sense, where it decides everything, but at a distance. They treat themselves like, uh, and how this, in politics, in court system, etc. So this reply, I like it so much that much that my, this is my private joke with my friends, did you see that shitty movie, Inglorious Bastards? I don't like it, but there is a wonderful line, like 10 minutes into the movie, you remember when the Nazi guy comes to the fr French farmer, no, and says, do you know why I'm here? And the farmer says, yes, to, you know, collect all the Jews, blah, blah. And then the Nazi guy answers, Führer himself couldn't have put it better, no? And like, when this dissident was answered, you know, what party? Party doesn't exist. I would say, Führer himself couldn't have put it better, no? Why? Because uh, what, now you will say, what's the point? Ah, the point is very Interesting. And incidentally, how can you see this point? Look at the Stalinist Soviet Union. Do you know that Stalin was just a secretary, general secretary of the party, and for some time prime minister? He never was the president. Who was the president? I even don't know. I think it was Mikhail Kalinin, definitely a nobody. You know, uh, uh, and even in China, you have exactly a similar mechanism. So what I want to say is that now comes the sad, tricky part. I claim that the way so-called dictatorship of the proletariat functioned was precisely through this distance towards the state. No, communists in power were never simply we are the state. We are the shadowy power which always maintains a minimum of distance towards the state. And precisely this minimum of distance worked as this element of violence. That's the dictatorship. This, we have the party apparatus, but we know it doesn't stand on its own. And I'm even not just saying that this is a bad thing. I mean, I'm not celebrating it, but are you aware 
And although this book and me with that book, the party is very critical of uh, today's China, he points out that this is one of the key factors why China, which stood, uh, survived this 2008 crisis so efficiently. Because if left to their own, private banks, even the government, would have reacted the way they did in the West. Oh my God, crisis, we don't know if we will get the money back, so banks stopped giving loans and so on and so on. There, this party which exists but nobody knows where it exists, simply, you know, screw democracy, they gave the order to banks. No legal order, there is no law, party doesn't exist, but legally, but they gave the order, even more gift credits. It worked magnificently and so on. And I want to con link this to, to, you remember my old story, what happened in the United States after 2008. You remember, first the Congress voted against the first measure, then they de facto introduced some kind of emergency. Do you remember? All of them, official enemies, came together. Obama, McCain, Bush, and basically told the Congress, fuck up with your democracy. We don't have time for your shitty debates, now we have to do it. And in one week, Congress simply voted with large majority for it. In other words, the tragedy of today's democracy, the way it works, is that it's more and more in conflict with the demands of today's capitalism, where, because of these purely virtual dynamics of crisis and so on, more and more, this kind of a sudden, brutal interventions are needed, which it's very difficult to cover them. It's very, very difficult to cover them with democracy. So I think the challenge today, the true challenge, is precisely this. We have the, the left, contrary to what people think, this deification of state power. This is liberal bourgeois attitude. The left always was de facto defined by some kind of, a, at least a radical left, distance towards power. And this distance, this distance has many facets. You have totalitarian distance, and which precisely is not totalitarian state. But what makes it totalitarian is that the state power never overlaps with, let's call it naively, real power. You know, there is always another in the background, uh, and the, uh, there is only one case, I think, where these two dimensions, that is to say, the true seat of power in the party and state power did overlap. But this, I think, triumphantly demonstrates my case, because the result was that the power itself, state, became illegal with regard to itself. I'm talking, of, of course, about Khmer Rouge, Kampuchea, where simply, do you remember, till only after two years in power, they even announced who is their boss, Pol Pot. For the first two years, they literally treated themselves being in power as illegal. You just knew the name Anka organization. If you ask, okay, but, and they had elections, but if you ask whom I was voting for, uh, this was the last question you asked, probably, no? But I think that, in, now I come to my point. So we have this totalitarian distance from state power. Then we have this neo-left John Holloway and, unfortunately, uh, John Holloway and Alain Badiou, 
my good friend. At least here they come strangely together. This idea of subtraction, like literally, state is out there, we should be here just benevolently exerting pressure on it. I think that the great task today is to invent a new mode of distance towards state, which is violent in this formal sense of, but in the formal sense of uh, not being totally constrained by state loss, but paradoxically maybe only this violence of distance towards state can prevent real violence in the physical sense of the state itself. And uh, we have some, I'm not saying they should be simply imitated example of this, I don't know. Take, for example, what happens today in Bolivia. Isn't, I'm not idealizing it, they are deep in problems, but isn't it nonetheless the whole dialectic of Morales Linera government that while they are the state, they maintain a certain social dynamics with grassroots movements and so on, which puts them at a certain distance towards state, without, again, involving in any violence in the sense of people disappearing or whatever. Didn't, wasn't Aristide doing the same thing and so on. I think if you ask me, this is the crucial task today, to reinvent, to find a new way of maintaining a distance towards state power because, but again, neither the totalitarian one nor the Zapatista one. They are only, they are simply the two sides of the same. Either you control state power, then you have uncontrolled killings, or you don't, but then you are too much for me a moralistic agent or whatever. I mean, this is at least for me the crucial problem. Okay, I was too long, but you are used to it. That's life. Seriously, I'm grateful for your patience. Just to, maybe we can do one, two questions yeah, yeah. just to sustain the illusion but that... Take this in case. Ah, woman wants... Stealing, stealing, no, no, I wanted to do the obscenity. You, 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 there is something phallic about it. You want it, no? Okay, sorry. I cannot resist it. And now you want it. And, uh, uh, but we're not used to the sentimental version. No, no, but uh, just let me tell you something. You know that I got the answer of a lifetime when I uh, repeated my old problematic joke. This was the true Lacanian answer. Now in the United States, against this stupid political correctness, no, you know this Santa Cruz story, which really happens. I was there and they told me, why your dirty stories? We have wonderful jokes here, which are very funny, but nobody is hurt and humiliated. Like, uh, what happens when a triangle meets a circle? Of course, I said brutally, you know, what the hell do I care? What, what happens when a triangle meets a circle? I want dirty joke when somebody is... And then I got the correct answer, which was, how can you say this as a Lacanian? Don't you get it that, you know, the true trick is the forum itself and so on, that I totally, that I fall into some kind of non-dialectical substantialism and so on. On the other hand, then, I, I was told you even missed the connotation of this pure forum. Like, uh, what happens when a triangle meets with a circle? Circle, phallic, triangle, you know what? My God, many things... Okay, it's another story. What I'm saying is, let's go on, please. Please. Uh, any questions, question. Then? Uh, 
Uh, no, but what interests me is if you have something, I'm open here, I'm not bluffing, about points which I considered are even moderately interesting, like this idea of inventing a new way, way of... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you ruined my pleasure, which is to ask myself a question. <laughs> interesting facts about uh, Obama's early uh, presidency was the fact that he, he had all the power at a certain point. He had the whole Senate. He had Congress. And one of the problems, one of the really big criticisms of it was the fact that he didn't use it to really attack the Republicans. Um, instead of, say, pushing through uh, healthcare reform, he goes around and says, well, let's try and convince the Republicans to join the law. That he wasn't violent enough, maybe? Or how would you... Yeah, no, no, I, not, here I totally agree with you, because, you know, I wonder if you saw it, a week ago in New York, I watched an interview with Michael Moore, not that I like him excessively, but he made a wonderful point, the slogan of his interview is, more and more I like Republicans. No, no, he's not. And then he said, because formally, my God, when they got power, they use it brutally, they believe in it. And he says, I'm starting to think, do these uh, Democrats around Obama, you know, he sounded as a kind of a progressive, progressive Christian. Because he said, do they believe in anything? They, they, they act as if they don't believe, they are afraid to you, to brutally do it. You know why I also agree with you? Because I know enough of my own small political experience this. You know, what's the paradox of, you may know it if you are involved in it, the paradox of political power is that when you want to seduce the opponent by way of saying, okay, let's meet halfway, blah, 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 that's not the way to do. If you start with this, opponent will necessarily uh, experience this as a weakness. No, first you must shoot. And then when you scare them, then maybe if necessary, you know, you don't begin by making compromises. I, here I totally, I totally, I totally agree with you that, my God, again, the paradox is at a formal level. We should learn from Although, you know, it's wonderful with what is happening now with this Tea Party and so on, how involved they are in uh, pure... I think the most interesting class struggle is now going on within the Republican Party. You have the Tea Party, which wants what? Cut the taxes and, uh, and slash the budget deficit. Of course, the problem is how to do this together. <laughs> because all... all things are already starting to move in the sense of the split there. Because do you know that the true leadership, not the party, of, of the Republican Party already met big bank managers and promised them to repeal that Volcker Amendment, whatever, which precisely prohibits or tries to control these speculations by banks which led to 2008 and so on. So you have here a party which won with the slogan against public deficit, debt, and its first economic measure, two measures will be to abolish this amendment and B, to prolong the Bush's, Bush's tax cut for the rich people, which means a guarantee that public debt will explode even more. You see, here you have, but the, the story is here, a very sad one. It's the story about material efficiency of ideology. Because if you are naively rational, you would say, would say, 
can they see that to lower, sorry, to prolong the tax cuts means immediately everybody even knows how much. It's 700 billion per year, billions, more deficit. And nonetheless, they do it. So, uh, I, this is the But uh, I agree here with you. My only I, problem is that I had debates with my American friends about this. Was Obama even... First, yes, I agree with you, he is way too kind a guy. He really is, you know, I don't like this. I mean, it might be nice sympathetically, but you know, he, you know, my cynical definition, they asked me, what is the difference between moderate leftist and a true communist? Okay, to annoy people, I said, even if the situation is desperate, a moderate leftist will stick a knife into you. But then the communist turns a knife. Like, like this is Obama, it's not in his nature, no? I agree with you totally. My point is only that, again, are you aware, for example, this healthcare reform? How many obstacles opponents he had, even with this uh, modest politics, even in the Democratic Party itself? I think maybe more than Obama himself, the, the problem is the Democratic Party. This is what is happening now in the States. Both big parties are getting split. Republicans into Tea Party populism, but there the result is predictable. I think that, uh, you know, this uh, Lincoln saying, you cannot, you can treat some people most of the time, uh, all the time, uh, all people sometime, not all the people all the time. Where maybe Lincoln was wrong. The success of this American right-wing populism means that at least for a large amount of people, you can treat all of them all the time, at least the majority. So, and in the Democratic Party, you know, it's not just, you know, now all the price for all those Clinton compromises, triangulation, and so on, triangulations, I think they pay the price. Don't underestimate the extent, probably, you know, to what extent within the Democratic Party itself, this... I mean, Senator Lieberman, the big bad guy who openly supported McCain, is just the extreme. You have this realistic blah blah view, and they are they are more or less even openly now opposed to opposed to Obama. Okay. Uh, there was a gentleman there in white. Uh, that's another one. That's oh. another one. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I start from what you said in the beginning about uh, how you situated yourself about the events that happened here yesterday, uh, the demonstration and everything. I know you know from the media what I know. No, no, no. Maybe something was wrong, I apologize. No, no. At one point you said, my God, no murderous violence. So my question would be, where do you draw the line politically and theoretically? And I just have to quote another example from Greece. Yeah. In Greece, the politics have been very contentious for the past year after the and everything. And then... In one of the biggest demonstrations against the austerity measures, things uh, got contentious as they were, and somehow three people died out of a fire that was caused by burning by people just demolishing something. Yeah. So my question, because because we have to be more serious in this, in my view, this mm. approach, where do you draw the line strategically and theoretically in terms of uh, violence, murderous violence, non-murderous violence, and violence as a means of acting? Yeah, now m maybe my reply will disappoint you. I mean, of course, I uh, uh, 
I only can give you, I don't think you can, in the Habermasian way, draw some kind of a Kantian a priori rule, and so on. I, unfortunately, you have to, what's the expression, play it by the ear or whatever. I don't think you can say, okay, uh, like, for example, some Greek friends even told me, you can establish rules, like, when you attack a building, it should be only like McDonald's, foreign company, not this poor small cafe owner who blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but you can only play this up to a certain limit. There, there is no a priori rule, but nonetheless, I think, unfortunately, that you can, you have to take the risk. Because it's horrible to say, but you know, uh, it works. There are situations where if you don't have a minimum of this sense of emergency, Things people think simply don't start to move. Like, let's take it here precisely. Without those a little bit of crash windows or whatever, whatever, I think these propositions would simply, I don't know, not be taken seriously and so on and so on. The problem is the way our media are structured. I can well imagine, a media, I'm not blame, I mean, it's so easy to blame the media, but our public space is so distorted that only in this way you can be heard. I am far from idealizing, for example, Norway and so on, Sweden. But nonetheless, in those countries, people convince me, and again, I repeat it three times, I'm far from idealizing them. But they have, I think, much higher level of this, you can be hurt without violence. You know, it's all a question of, again, how the public space is structured. And again, I know this may be uh, disappointing, but like the conclusion would be then practically do nothing. I mean, anything can run out of control, you know. Like, this would be the same thing as to say, sorry for this bad taste example, let's, let's prohibit all the football matches because, you know, whenever you have them and so on and so on. No, I have no... Uh, I mean, to be frank, I'm well aware of the dangers of violence, and I don't celebrate violence. Like, I only once was in a situation which was not even violent, but so-so. In ex-Yugoslavia, when it was falling apart, there was a, a week maybe in Slovenia where it was a little bit of this. It wasn't clear who is in power and so on. And I can tell you there is nothing pleasant about it, you know. It's easy to have this dream, oh, the state withdraws, and oh, we are free, yeah, but, uh, 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 you know. Like, remember that all these examples that we celebrate, let's take May 68, no? That's my suspicion about it, you know. The story, much more often than we think, was, here I slightly disagree with my best friend, but you, was that, you know, you come with your car, you parked it beyond Port Royal or on the right side, parked it safely, then you crossed the La Seine, you threw some bottles, demonstrated, then you withdraw to the, to the Rive Gauche, no? No, to the Rive Drat, the north, you meet in a cafe with friends, if possible with some journalists for an interview, and then you take your, took your limousine and <laughs> wait. In other words, you know, are we aware to what extent the state has to function in the sense of we rely on that, on that? Don't play with that too easily. The problem is not that I'm celebrating violence. The problem is the inertia, mediatic, and so on, of 
the political... You know what is for me the true cause of violence? You remember this story, I was repeating this story often, when the last elections that were won by Labour Party. I was here, I remember, two weeks before. And there was a big show, they were electing through people's votes, calling listeners, the most unpopular person in the UK. Of course, Tony Blair won. But two weeks later, he won the elections. Isn't this a strange sign of political discrepancy? That is to say, obviously, there was a large extent of public discontent, which wasn't captured by the system of parliamentary representation. The problem, the only way to really fight violence is to to change things to change things at that level. No. Uh, yes, this follows on in a way. Um, just uh, at the beginning, you talked about the London demonstrations, and it was interesting watching the media coverage when the um, uh, the radical advocates of the action were on, for example, this BBC show Newsnight. Uh, no matter how hard uh, the person tried, it was incredibly difficult to find any kind of line to say. And I think the difficulty was that there has to be some, or there's usually some level of euphemism. And so when this sorry, some level of euphemism, yeah, uh, euphemism, yeah, yeah, understatement. And so, for example, the, the um, there's this idea of counter violence. Or there's the idea of, uh, which I know you don't agree with quite rightly, um, uh, interstitial resistance. These kinds of um, forms of speaking about violence without speaking about it. Now it seems to me there are two options, and I'm not sure quite where you stand. One is to defend violence, and is to say um, this violence is justified, so, which is what you said at, at the beginning. Um, you know, you have to smash windows to deliver the message. But I wonder, what do you think uh, in, of the second option, which is to say... As Apo, for example, smashing the windows, this is not violence. So, which is to say, one takes your starting point at the beginning of yeah, the violence. Yeah. Book, that example, would be interesting, but that, yeah. That, that systemic violence uh, and linguistic violence and these kinds of violence are the only violences that count. What about saying that, in fact, protests of this kind are for non violence? This, not yeah. violence. this works wonderfully, but be aware that this works precisely as some kind of a paradoxical statement. No? Paradoxical in the sense that for the majority of people, I don't despise them, living in everyday ideology, to them this precisely is presented and they, up to a point, experience, they will tell you, wait a minute, what is, if the fact that I cannot walk on that street because the, the windows are smashing, somebody can hit me, if this is not violent, you know what I mean. I, but otherwise, I'm deeply, I precisely think that this, this, uh, this apparently absurd statement, but this is not violence. I deeply, you know in what sense I'm deeply sympathetic with it. I'm not now just bluffing to get you on my side, because this is what I try to say, the point, with that statement, which caused me so much trouble even now, uh, he, the problem with Hitler is that he wasn't violent enough. No, he wasn't able to do systemic violence, which is why he had to do Kristallna. That this is, in Nietzsche's sense, reactive violence. I don't want to concede to Hitler even this evil greatness of, my God, the guy was evil, but he had balls. No, he was a coward. He didn't have real balls. Real, bo real balls would have been to, not to, instead of killing people, to killing, changing the system a little bit. And he killed millions because he was afraid to change. But also what you said about covering in the media, 
are we aware to what extent media are not in any paranoia way controlled, but like how sensitive things are here as to who covers what, in what way, for example. Uh, this, uh, I met also some Palestinians when I was in Israel and the other Israelis, and they both told me the same story. I don't idealize her, but do you remember Hannah Ashrawi? That Edward Said student, very educated Palestinian lady, who was 20 years ago around, I would have said, the public face of PLO. No, all the time you saw her on CNN and so on. Then she disappeared. It's wonderful the explanation I was given. It's almost as another version of that Udi Aloni story uh, of uh, why no Jews were killed on September 11th. Uh, it was a strange overlapping of opposite interests. On the one hand, the sad thing about PLO, the West Bank, is the gradual disappearance of secular left. So as part of this, she was considered too much by, let's call them, religious hardliners. No, an educated pro-Western woman cannot be our voice. But now comes the beautiful paradox. The Zionist... Uh, exerted in the United States the same pressure of CNN, why not? Because it didn't fit the image they wanted to project of Palestinians, that you have an educated lady, non, non, not with half-covered face, whatever. They much preferred that, you know, Arafat uh, stumbling, half-English for whatever, you know, to make, uh, these are the true Palestinians, no? So isn't it a nice paradox, how? The coincidence of the opposite, again, she was sacrificed, she didn't fit any, uh, any of the two. But what you said, yes, coming to think about deeply, this is uh, a strategy to be thought about. I think it's very efficient, yes, to say, and then, I hope you agree with this, that the first, okay, you say this is not violence, then the people, you have this common sense reaction, ha ha, are you crazy? But then, if you make them understand this, if you explain it good, then in a sense you won. Because I claim that the moment you see in what sense this is not violence, you see our point. So it's, thanks very much, I will probably plagiarize you and use this, and if you give me your name, I will do the usual hypocritical thing, you know. I will add on the tiny, tiny footnote, <laughs> and not even conceding it to you, but at the same time that I was developing this idea, a colleague of mine came to a similar idea, you know, you know how we academics are cheating. Thanks very much, sincerely. Okay, we've got a few more questions, I don't know if you want to take them together, or... or uh, uh, now I'm for group sex, take them together, yes, yeah, yeah. getting time. Yeah. Yes, but I haven't actually got, it's not really falling into questions, but it's more on the gypsy, the, uh, the case of the other, because um, in England at the moment, there's a place called Dale Farm in Essex. Well, I next it, yeah. Dale Farm, it's um, under eviction. It's from the only, it's the, I think it's the only Dutch uh, Irish gypsy that's left in England. Um, but it's like, uh, it, it sort of fits the same pattern there. And it, like, to an extent, they are always doing criminal activities. Uh -huh. One of which included um, hacking the pieces of the local helicopter, police helicopter, because they can't fly around and come to see what they're doing, so they, uh, they're accused of taking hatches. Ah, so this is interesting, so here... It's not really hit the news at all, but... Um, uh, this is typical, yes. What hits the news? What? And then at some point it's going to hit the news, and then everyone's going to get... 
but let me make it clear. So it's this camp, and uh, the, the police itself is putting soft pressure on them, and not even... Ah, this is... Inter but here, the case is clearer, you know. What was so perverse in Slovenia was that it was more that West Bank... Uh, Palestinian-Israeli situation where the police is split. Officially, it pretends even to protect them, but it protects them in such a way. For example, here, of course, I didn't agree. What did the police do? The police said, of course, it's horrible, those racists and so on. We have to protect the Roma. Yes, and then they forced them and practically kidnapped them and put them into some abandoned school and so on and so on. It was a wonderful example of how in order to protect the poor Roma, they did exactly what the local racists wanted. I think it's interesting because they're not Irish. Irish. I, I know this. I know this. You see, now you said something. I will just show you, sorry, how politicized the debate is with us. What you said now, every right-winger in Slovenia knows. Why? Because we have this struggle of which term should be used, Roma or gypsies. And right-wingers want to use gypsy, but in this vulgar sense as a humiliation. And so, did I get you correctly? Because what they claim is that of, if you look at how should I put it, objectively, then Roma are just one of the groups of the gypsies, no? And they like this because this legitimizes them to use the word, they are, how should I put it, right for the wrong reason. <laughs> they are factually right, but, it, ah, but this is, you know what is also interesting? Uh, uh, I like it very much when the Roma gypsies, whatever, try to organize themselves. They try to, no? Yeah, but but the problem is then again, where is the? I mean, uh, how my problem is always how to make this how to make this efficient? Because do you know what? How long a tradition of this anti-gypsy sentiment? Not only were they, as you probably know, put into camps together with Jews by the Nazis, but even nicer, nicer in a horrible sense. You know the big last work by Husserl, the crisis of. European, blah, blah, blah. He speaks there of European spiritual unity, European, Europe as spiritual entity. Derrida brings out this nicely. And then he says, Europe, we mean it not, not uh, territorially, but spiritually. And then Husserl, yes, as you may expect, says, take, for example, the gypsies. They are territorially here, but spiritually they are not Europe. They are out, and so on, and so on. So you see how... This is what I meant when I said no ethnic cleansing without poetry, maybe even without, you know, I, this is whom I hate, these thinkers, poets, who their hands are very clean, but ah, 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 they lay the foundation slowly, no? And then, of course, when real violence begins, they are the first to say, oh, my God, it's the distortion of our deep insight, we didn't want that, no? Maybe we should, nonetheless, this is body language. <laughs> Poetical. Theoretical. Theoretical, sorry. Yeah. I would like to ask you what's your argument to justify why is strategical violence the really latent question now? And the emphasis here is, is on why it's strategic and not on why violence. Uh, is strategical violence based in the construction of a shared space or a sense of solidarity? 
but uh, subjectification isn't can be considered monophysism. And if subjectification is individualistic, how to think resistance? Can can we think the capacity to brutally do it that Obama lacks, or to turn the knife as in one example of personal violence? And if yes, how can we think uh, how to transform or connect it in socially organized action? Uh, okay, this is of course a one million dollar question. I mean, if I would have to, if I were to have a precise answer to that one. I would have given it to you. All I'm saying is that uh, uh, it's not for me a question of, again, not even uh, strategic violence. Again, I just proposed a couple of steps. First step is to understand violence as, you said before, primarily not, not as, as simply uh, non, let's call it naively, you have a certain, let's, it's very abstract, system which functions using its own rules but also its own transgressions and so on. And the the change, the true change, even if it's not physically violent, always has something violent. Violent in the sense of brutally by brutally I mean not justified by the rules of the game by brutally changing the rules of the game. Or to put it in more even theoretical terms, you know this distinction, like all the French guys like it, but you, Ranciere, between society as corporate social body, each at our place, and this radical egalitarian point. There is always some kind of a clash between the two. In this sense, I claim... uh, Violence for me is not about killing people. It's about this experience of when you all of a sudden note of how society, in the sense of big other, organic order on which we rely, is up in the air. You know, you are not, you cannot rely on order. This is the exact opposite of corporate violence, which is precisely violence in order to sustain the order. Like, for me, this is, let's take Pinochet. I remember his first words, which were, the only thing we did this is the things return back to normal. That workers will forget about politics, workers should work again, and so on and so on. In, so, uh, this is, uh, this, and my second point is that one always have to remem- has to remember the violence which is here. Not, not even as a, some kind of abstract systemic violence, but uh, very concrete in different material prax- practices and so on and so on. And I claim that uh, I just think we should accept that whenever you really touch things, change, you have, you have, in this sense, you have violence. In this sense, for me, for me to make a good example, uh, for example, uh, Gandhi was for me, as I like to say, to provoke people more violent than Hitler. Because Hitler was a coward. Gandhi, whatever he was, he wasn't a coward. He really did it, transformation, and so on and so on. Okay, the limits of this transformation is another point, but you see, this is the crucial point. I don't want to be caught into that nightmare of, oh my God, there is a window smashed, how far can we go, can we kill, and so on. Of course, there is something terrifying in all violence. But 
It's not a choice of, this would be my zero level formulation, it's not a choice between violence or non-violence because the way we are in everyday life already is violence. This, I'm an old-fashioned leftist, I don't want to concede on this point. Like, again, as you said, smashing windows. No, that tuition imposed is true violence. This is brutal violence which can mark generations and so on and so on. And it's pure, pure hypocrisy when people say, oh, but you smash the windows and so on and so on. You know, it's as if, I don't know, I, sorry, tasteless. No, I'll do it the other way around so that I'm the victim. It, is it as if uh, you, I don't know why, you smash me, in, you spit into my face, smash me, and I said, fuck off, and you say, how dare you to use that word? You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, but at the same time, the victim was a cat. Sorry? At the same time, when the victim was a cat, you did the thing again, but not with, uh, like, on the violence ground. Yes, um, it was interesting that you mentioned the Norway and Sweden. My background is from the Norwegian media, or the, and the left in Norwegian media, and I just uh, want to invite you to, to reflect on the way uh, you are used uh, as, a, as a thinker. Uh, in Norway? Not in Norway, <laughs> uh, in general, uh, because the way you are represented, in, or the way you are uh, coming across in Norway, uh, I think, is, uh, is as a critical thinker, and as, as, a, as a somewhat... Uh, uh, Excuse my French. Comedian. Yeah, uh, I wanted and, to say comedian. And, yeah. I mean, just like uh, YouTube, you have 200,000 clicks on the, your comment on vegetarianism, whereas uh, instead there's maybe a thousand clicks on uh, your important, uh, productive uh, political uh, thoughts, line of thoughts. So the way you're used is, is just as a critic and not as a, a productive political thinker, and in, in that sense, uh, paradoxically, uh, you're also becoming, your popularity is becoming as part of a symptom of the crisis of the left uh, I in itself. I tend up to a point to agree with you, and I will tell you up to which point. I'm trying, I agree, to play this risky game. My, my strategic choice years ago was, this is a tasteless, no, no, nothing vulgar, don't be afraid, but a strange <laughs> example, I read in a book about priests, priests like Christian in the Wild West, that in order to attract attention, you know, they were the best magicians in the sense of card tricks, rabbits, and so on. Because they went to a saloon and first did some tricks, and then when uh, uh, people started to look at them, then, haha, you have the word of God, and so on, no? <laughs> and my idea was maybe I can manipulate a little bit in this way. Of course, the risk is to apply to go on with the metaphor that people will just stay for the tricks and then they will. But uh, I see nonetheless some signs of change. And one symptom of this change is precisely the level of attacks on me which is changing. Till now, did you notice this? The predominant tone was what you said. Uh, sometimes he's a little crazy communist, but communist, but forget about that. We go to see dirty jokes about gypsies and blah, 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 you know, like... He will amuse us for blah, blah, blah. But then it's not only the New Republic. It's uh, other media in the United States. It's uh, in, in Germany. There was a whole polemic against me again and again. So now the message is not only he's a clown, but he's a clown, but don't be deceived by it. 
Beneath this clown, there is a dangerous message of blah, blah, blah. So, you know, this is for me some kind of a sign. And also, you know, if it were to be, you know, I don't want to boast, but my friend Eric Sentner, don't ask me why, these are the mysterious ways academia work. He is in that, that inner circle of whenever you are uh, considered for any price, you know, all this city human price, they, yeah, they, they, he is one of the secret committees, you know, like, he is always asked. And he told me that in the last 10 years, he was asked to do, to say his opinion, to write on me. I was considered for a prize at least 30 times. And then I never got, not even one, because then he asked, why didn't he get it? They say, politics, you know, a little bit problematic, and so on and so on. So don't have too many illusions here. My last point would have been why I nonetheless like also this comical aspect. Fuck it, not you. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, why should we, I know, I can't, like, as if, since we are leftists, what we should do, just, ooh, children are starving in Africa and so on. Fuck it, why? We can have better fun than the stupid right-wingers. Why should they take this from us, you know? But I agree with you, there are problems here. And again, would you agree? I'm, you know where it's good to mention your country, not as an ideal, but isn't this important to mention? Sorry if I repeat myself. Without idealizing you, by you, now I mean your glorious Norway, whatever, that, uh, do you know, uh, recently I was sent a text by, I don't know if I will pronounce the name, the Swedish guy across the river, uh, the river, the fjord, uh, the, the Göran, Tjörborn, Tjörborn, you know, the Swedish leftist Marxist, Göran, Tjörborn, Okay, who did something, sorry if I repeat myself, it's a wonderful point. Wonderful to show how even within the system we have a maneuvering space and how neoliberal ideology cheats. He says, let's take Scandinavian countries. And again, with all critiques, you are still relatively much more egalitarian and healthcare, blah, blah, all the bullshit than others. Uh, much more. For example, if you look at the usual in a company, span of wages between lowest and highest, it's much lower. But then the usual argument of neoliberalism is if we do this, become more egalitarian, blah, 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 you know what's the mantra? We will lose competitivity. Ah, then Terborn does this. He looks not at some leftist cheating uh, economy, but the true values, Wall Street and so on. But you know where you are immediately after, okay, the first two you cannot beat them are Singapore and Hong Kong. Then Scandinavian countries already enter a stop competitivity. This is an empirical proof that it's simply not true even within the capitalist rules what ideology is telling us, you know, more healthcare, more this, ooh, ooh, you lose competitivity. No, you don't necessarily lose competitivity. It's all, to put it very simple, you know, even Marx in Capital, when he speaks about the value of labor force. He emphasizes this is not a biological. The value of labor force is the result of ideological struggle. How much is accepted as normal for work? And this is a struggle of fight which has not even honest economists. Like that guy, Hartfield or what, who did that. No, 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 sorry, just to finish. Even he says that, uh, that uh, there is nothing a priori between market effectiveness and higher health care. Because you can include all this. Market only wants clear rules. But if you set a clear rule, sorry, 
it costs so much, blah, 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 then it can work, you know. They, what I want to say is that we should be very clear about something. How the system is cheating with regard to its own terms. What we effectively have is not li- neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is ideology. Effectively, they all have half-state-run economies, they cheat, and so on and so on. United States, uh, neoliberalism, are you crazy? Are, you, are, you, are we aware how much state intervenes all the time, and so on and so on? Sorry, but I still like your country. You know what I like? Uh, I was there in, in Oslo recently in a cafe with some friends, and there was a beautiful blonde waitress that came. As a sexist, I couldn't say, oh, and you know what they told me? Oh, that's just a Swedish worker. Like, you are now so much richer than Sweden are the poor immigrant workers. Ah, because I, li- I, li- I like that. Thanks very much. Yeah. I expected something. I expected to say, "No, Slavoj, you are not a clown. We love you deeply. We know you are really a good man." No, sorry. Thanks very much for your great service.